morning to each of you. Thank you so much for being in this particular class. And I, I know we're just trying to get people in. Let me make you aware that we do have a handout. And uh, so that was at the door as you came in. And there's plenty of time to, to get up and grab that if you would like to have that. It's not mandatory. You'll see the same thing on the uh, screens. But if you'd like the notes. And this morning, um, with this being the beginning of the class, there's some additional things to do, and I have some additional material for you. So let me say at the outset, um, on your paper for this morning, you have on the front side or whatever side you're, you're looking at, um, you have the first lesson, which is the life of Joseph. It says that at the top. And then you have on the back a chronology of the life of Joseph. Uh, I won't be giving you that every week, and I won't necessarily be referring to it every week. But I thought it would be useful Sometimes it's kind of nice when you're, you're looking at Scripture to kind of have an idea of where things fit together, where they slot in, in the greater scheme of things. So I have that there for you, and uh, so I, I'm only suggesting that it may be helpful if you want to consult it to keep that paper handy with your things or in your Bible, uh, whatever your practice is. Anyway, um, thank you so much for being a part of this beginning class on the life of Joseph. That is where you are, life of Joseph. Uh, there are other classes. So Bruce Curlett is over on my left, your right, and he has the God we worship. And I think Jerry Priest is over here, uh, and he has a class on Joshua and Judges. So there are a lot of good choices. Hope you decide to, to stay with this class after you hear what you hear today. But I do appreciate you being here. Um, Little differences that you see this morning, you have these, um, call them dividers, whatever you would like to call them. Um, we sort of have a logistical situation that they're, one of them is that they are addressing is people needing to get into Bruce's class because Pastor Cameron has the Welcome to Community class in A, so you, you can't really access Bruce's class except through this door over here. So in order just, I really appreciate that because that's, that's some forward thinking. It, those kinds of things can be a distraction when people are milling around like that or latecomers, this type of thing. Okay, well, let's go in our Bibles right away to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. I've always found in doing, whether it was a new sermon series or a new Sunday school series, uh, your opening one is always a little more of a challenge. And o over the years, I got to where I would just cut back on the material because I, I, I knew it was going to happen before I ever got there because... You have some things you want to say in the first class that you don't necessarily repeat, and that'll be a little bit true today, so I want to get going with this. But at first, um, I've never been one to skimp on this. I've always felt that, you know, if I'm going to stand up there and talk for 40 minutes or whatever in front of people and, and don't give attention to the reading of God's Word, that's a little arrogant, I've always felt. God's Word is a lot more important than anything I have to say. And I think since we won't necessarily be rereading everything as we go along, I want to be sure that you're familiar with the content. I know in general you know the story, but I want to be sure you're sort of reacquainted with what's going on in Genesis 37 as uh, we begin this. So I want to read the chapter, and it's a little longer, not exceptionally long, but if you'd be so kind as just to try to focus and pay attention uh, to the reading of God's Word, you know, it, it is one of the things that Paul told Timothy to do. King James says, give attention to reading. And I've always felt that that was important. So here we are. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. 
Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother... One second here, I got pages flipped together. Shall I and your mother and brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here am I. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem, And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, "'What profit is it if we kill our brother?' and conceal his blood. Come, let us not, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 
they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn in pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we'll end our reading there, and uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for all the people of God that are assembling now for Bible study uh, here at Community. And Lord, we're cognizant of the fact that your work and your day are progressing around the world, and we want to pray that it will be a, a banner day for the kingdom of God. We pray that God's people will be drawn together, edified and enriched. We pray souls will be saved. We pray specifically you'll bless us here at Community. And more specifically now, in this particular class, Lord, you have assembled each person who is here this morning. We can only ask that you uh, will meet the needs that we each present. You know what they are. And I pray that you would just guide and direct in my speech so that I will say things economically, helpfully, and practically so that each person goes away with some sense today that there was something here that God meant individually and personally and met us where we are. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, let's talk about some things on an introductory basis to the life of Joseph. I don't know about you, but Scripture is... You, have you ever noticed that Scripture is a book of narrative? Uh, scripture has many genres of literature in it. Narrative is, is a predominant one. You, of course, you have wisdom literature. You have letters. You have epistles in the New Testament. But think about it. Think how much of the Bible is contained with stories. And even think back, because most people in the room this morning uh, are parents. And you think back to child rearing and think how that was one of the earliest things you did. Before your kids could read, you told them Bible stories. And I was thinking about this because I don't remember which one of our kids it was, but somehow one of them morphed. You know how kids will morph words. And they don't say them right in the beginning, and it's kind of cute and funny, and we remember some of them. And I, remember, I don't know which one of our kids it was would talk about a Bible Dee Dee. And I'm not sure you how you get Dee Dee out of story, but our youngest son, he had a favorite. And if he was having a little difficulty settling down at night, my wife would say, go in and tell him a Bible story. And I'd go in there, and he always wanted to hear, and the way I told it, he especially liked it. I think it appealed to his personality. But he especially liked the one about the Philippian jailer. And I would always tell it to him that the angel went in, and Peter was asleep, and he kicked him in the side. He loved that part. <laughs> he just loved that part. But we told our kids Bible stories, and we do that because not only are they endearing and they're easy to remember, but these stories are meant to be filled with practical and helpful truth. 
So I've given you three things this morning about the life of Joseph, why I feel that it's one of the most compelling stories in Scripture. But understand this, it's taken some discipline to limit this list to three because there are so many things you could say about the life of Joseph. This is a notable one to begin with. It contains many parallels to the life of Christ. Some people would call them types. Uh, Some people quibble over sometimes the use of that term if you don't have ironclad confirmation of that in the New Testament. Some people quibble over the, the use of the word types, but call it types, call it parallels, you have them there. Um, this being the opening chapter, by the way, some people have compiled lists of those and, and they, they are more extensive than you might think. I didn't give you anything on that today. Again, it's just trying to limit and keep within the time frames. But um, it's interesting as the story opens, you, you almost have the writer select on purpose one of those parallels that's kind of to be almost predominating. And I would call that rejection because uh, Joseph was rejected of his brothers. And you'll notice I gave you references in Acts because here you are going to find some New Testament background to this. Stephen brings this out in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. And if you go to the end, which is verse 52, and look at that verse, which of the prophets it says, did your fathers not persecute? This becomes his theme. If you read that and Stephen develops that sermon. He keeps pointing out and he picks out Moses as a lead example. Then he picks out Joseph and he says, you know, this has been your your pattern all along. You you have constantly rejected God's message and God's messengers. And so at, at the end, this is a summary statement, which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And then we go back to verse nine. So almost at the beginning, he brings out Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. When we think of the Lord Jesus, what does it say? He was despised and rejected of men. I wish I could talk more about that. I can't. Secondly, he bears no blemish. That is in the record. So you have to understand what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Joseph was sinless. All right? There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Solomon told us this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The New Testament, what I'm illustrating here is the Bible uniformly makes these statements in both Testaments. Romans chapter 3, you know this verse very well. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Joseph is a sinner just like you and I are sinners. No one escapes this. We're all in Adam. The really important question today is not whether or not you're in Adam, it's whether or not you're also in Christ. But at any rate, he bears no blemish insofar as the record is concerned. And you don't have much of this in the Bible. In fact, I'd love for you to tell me something different later because I always rack my brain trying to think, is this a correct statement? But as far as I know, Daniel is the only other major figure in the Bible that you have a story like this. And so insofar as the record does not record, as it does for many, most of the prominent people in the Bible, think of David. We all know the blemishes that were on David's record. And many, many more. Even Moses, the great lawgiver, you know, he killed a man. Did you know that? The great lawgiver who wrote, Thou shalt do no murder, killed a man in anger. So... All of that is recorded in Scripture because Scripture wants to consistently point out that even though these people were 
God's vessels and God's chosen servants, they were sinners. So are all of us. But you have these two men, and in that regard, this is another parallel to the life of Christ because he was certainly holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And Paul tells us this, writer of the Hebrews tells us this, but when Paul is giving that incredible statement of the gospel at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, he, hath the, he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, what? Who knew no sin. That we might be in the righteousness of God in him. So we do know this, that the, the, the character of Christ is impeccable. The record of Joseph is without blemish. Here's another one. And this is really what you'll hear me talk a lot about in these lessons, because this to me is one of the most, this is probably to me, the key attractant in this, but it illustrates the mysteries of divine providence. Now, I, I want to point out to you, you know something, folks, here we are sitting with, a, with an advantage that Joseph didn't have. And I want you to think about this when we start getting into today's lesson, because, see, you already know the end of the story. But picture yourself as a 17-year-old young man. And having all these things happen to you, this is really what we're going to talk about in the lesson today. And you really don't know the end from the beginning. You don't understand these things. You don't quite know what's going on. It's confusing and difficult. But, you know, when we get to the end of the record, which we have the benefit of doing, uh, we, know, we know this, but this would be probably, not the only, but probably the lead statement on this. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, when the whole thing is over, Jacob is dead, and Joseph is reassuring his brothers for whatever number of times, this was not the first. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I'm just going to say this, and I'll try to have time to come back at the end. Folks, it's a real pit to fall into. Speaking of pits, <clears throat> it's a real pit to fall into to allow yourself to interpret events that happen in your life as evil. Now, to be sure, you will encounter events and you will encounter people that are that way, it's seemingly that way. And some people are downright evil. But you see, the thing of it is, you and I belong to a God who's in control of every single thing that happens and every single person who lives, good or bad, evil or otherwise. And God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't allow things to happen in our lives, but what He is in control of those things. And just think about this this morning. He is so great, He is so big, that He can overrule the malignant intent of people in this world and actually thwart it so that it accomplishes ultimate good in our lives if we understand this principle about God and cooperate with what he's doing and actually beyond that accomplishes his ultimate purpose. And again, you have a parallel to the life of Christ because, right, they did this in ignorance, they did this in, they crucified him in belligerence and in animosity and what did they do? They accomplished the purpose and plan of God. This is our God. 
Well, we have to move on. So the life of Joseph is one of the most compelling stories in the Bible for those and many other reasons, but really is important to see where we are now in the book of Genesis. So look at verse 1. Actually, it's verse 2. See, it starts off with Jacob and says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, but then verse 2 says, these are the generations of Jacob. But then what's the next word? Joseph. It doesn't go on to continue to tell us about Jacob, although in the story we will find out about Jacob and his ending and all of those things. It goes on to tell us about Joseph because, see, it's changing now. In the progress of redemption, the story of redemption that is unfolded in the book of Genesis, the progress that we can trace in this opening book of the Bible, ever since God made that promise to Satan, In Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and his seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we know that's, Bible teachers and scholars have a 50-cent word for that. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's considered the first reference to the gospel in the Bible. God makes a promise that what Satan has done, he is going to undo and bring redemption So how does that progress? Well, you get to chapter 12, and all of a sudden we find out it's Abraham. It's through him and his seed that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You get to the New Testament, Paul tells us that seed was ultimately Christ in the book of Galatians. Then you move from Abraham to Isaac. You move from Isaac to Jacob. But remember, God said something that his people, he told Abraham this in Genesis chapter 15. His people were going to sojourn in the land of Egypt. God had a purpose in that. He later assured Jacob that it was okay to do what Joseph said and go down into Egypt. Because, you know, folks, they were really, they weren't much. They were nomadic. Uh, How many people does the Bible pick the number of 70 to tell us? Not much. That's not a nation. But God took them down into Egypt and he developed them into a nation. Then he brought them out. But there's something else going on here. Why is, why is Joseph not Reuben to be God's choice? See, you, normally you would think it would be the firstborn. But, you know, God has a way of upending what we think is the norm. But in this case, there were some, some significant reasons for it, and you probably know what this is. I think I have this verse for you, but the chronicler picks this up and tells us this in explicit terms. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, the record is is the verse I gave you in Genesis 35, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from them, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So he is God's chosen leader of the nation in this next phase of the development of the program of redemption. But let's come down to where we're going to be. Those are introductory type things. Let's come down to what I want to talk about in the lesson today. You see the title, A Shaky Start. Could you identify with that? I mean, if you think about it, every person sitting in this class this morning you had a start to your Christian experience. 
Some people start well. Some people, it's shaky. Well, if you can look back and kind of think, you know, mine wasn't the greatest. I, I found Christ, but uh, I wasn't real dedicated at first and wasted some time. A lot of people will tell you that. Whatever your circumstances, if you could identify with this, you'll find a lot of encouragement in, the, in this lesson this morning and in the life of Joseph because it's rocky. I mean, chapter 37, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outline for you six key things that got dumped on him. Some of which he had nothing to do with, some of which eh, he has it to deal with. So let's look at the first broad point. And the first broad point is Joseph's immaturity. Now, does that sound harsh? I don't mean it to. But I don't really know what else you would say about this. We know that We've already said this. We know that his character is sterling. There's no blemish recorded against him in the record. No sin, that is. His future is going to be a glorious one. But as the story opens, he's not perfect. He's not without his liabilities. To me, that's a real encouragement. Because all through the years of serving God, and it's still this way, I'll tell you, because it doesn't change until we're out of this flesh and out of this world. We all still have our liabilities. And it's important to keep that in mind. It'll keep you humble and on your knees. In this particular case, we can certainly see this unfolding. He's green as grass. But right away he has to develop, and here are the first two of the six things. He has to develop with divided, to deal with divided loyalty. Why do I say that? Look at verse 2. He's 17 years old, and notice the expression, the way the ESV handles this phrase, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, that's a translation and an attempt, I think, to bring out probably what the significance of that phrase in the original is that, see, he was 17. These sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, they were older. Essentially, they were grown men. So it would stand to reason that if Joseph was going to be with them. They knew the ropes. They knew a whole lot more about caring for the sheep and that job than Joseph did. So he would be sort of in an apprentice capacity or a journeyman type capacity. Um, and I think this is what the ESV is trying to do with that particular rendering is to bring out that there was, there was a bit of subservience there. He was there as a helper. I mean, we might use that word. He was, he was a helper. But he was learning as he went along, but he was there as a helper. But now look what happens. Even though that's the role that the boys, the other brothers, see him in, and it's probably the, the, the appropriate role, it says here, Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So what would you do if you were in his situation? I mean, I, I tell you folks, I may have mentioned this before, but all through my time, I've had a great reluctance. I, I hear, I have heard preachers stand up and preach about Peter and rail about the mistakes he made. And I just can't do that. I'm going to be accurate with the record if I'm dealing with Peter or any other character in the Bible. I'll tell you what I think their fo foibles and failings were. And hopefully we can apply that to our own lives. But, you know... You and I are cut out of the same bolt of cloth. 
And anytime you point one finger at somebody else, you have three coming back. It's really important to keep that in mind. So in this particular case, I just don't know. I've heard people say, well, you know, this was really stupid. What would you do? What would you do? I mean, we're not told what these guys were up to. But looking at what happens later in the record, it, I, there's a lot, of, a lot of margin to think they weren't up to a lot of good. Right? So what would you do if there was some sort of a tacit, or maybe even more, we're not told this either right now, later we are, that Jacob sort of relied, maybe Jacob had his suspicions, and sort of relied on Joseph to kind of keep him posted. If you were in that bind, what would you do? You know you're going to create trouble with your brothers if you tell on them. But if you don't tell on them, you're in trouble with your father. Well, you figure it out. It's not easy. You have to figure out what's the right thing to do. But this is not an easy thing for a 17-year-old young man to have to deal with. That's my whole point. It's a difficult beginning. Verse 5, let's look at that. We see the second thing, which is heady revelation. So how would you like to get these dreams? How would you like to have all these older brothers, ten of them to be exact? <laughs> and how would you like to get a dream that was vague on details? This dream is vague on details. You get the gist, right? You get the gist. You know what the gist of it is, but you don't know how. You don't know when. The dream seems to, seems to indicate very clearly that even though you're younger and you have all these older brothers and it's not the norm for things to work out that way, you are going to end up being in some kind of a position of authority and ascendancy over them. That'd make you real popular with them, wouldn't it? So I've heard people, again, you know, wax eloquent on how unwise this was on Joseph's part. You know, folks, I'll be honest with you, that might be true, but I think you can make an equal case for a different way of looking at this. I think you can make an equal case for saying that it was confusing to him that maybe he went to his brothers hoping it would make some sense to them. Maybe he thought they could help him out. I don't know. I don't get any impression whatever from reading anything anywhere in the record that he was arrogant, that he was looking to go in there and just kind of say, hey, bud, you might be here, but I'm here. I don't get any impression of that. So I just have difficulty with throwing those punches when I don't know they're deserved. I see more that he's got a lot to deal with here. He's, God tells him some things about his life in the future, but he doesn't have any details. He's searching. He's struggling. It doesn't make sense. He doesn't have the specifics of it. He tells his brothers. All right? But it generates some real problems, doesn't it? They don't react well. They don't say something to him like, well, you know, God is amazing. He does some crazy things, at least from our perspective. It, there might be something to this. We'll just have to make it a matter of prayer and see what it is that God has in the future. We don't know what it means either. It doesn't make sense to us either. No, they're not very helpful that way. They resent it, don't they? So that gives us leave of this point. And it just say one more thing before we do leave it, and that is that, you know, if you're looking at this already, you're saying to yourself, I thought the Bible said there's no temptation or trial taking you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. 
who will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And I'm thinking that you and I might be thinking, especially when, since we've only seen two and there are going to be six, is this more than this guy can handle? I felt that way before, have you? I mean, I have. I have gotten to places in my life where I said, Lord, I just don't know if I can handle this. But I have to keep coming back just like you do to what the clear truth that the Bible gives me is. God isn't going to give me anything bigger than he can give me bigger grace to deal with. And I'm a big chicken. I'm not standing in line. I'm not saying, God, I believe you, so throw one at me. I'm just as content to, (laughs) you know what, I've been in those situations, they're not fun. But we do know that to be true. So even though it may seem that way, we have to keep telling ourselves no. All right, so the second thing is, you would think that Jacob, a man who is his father, a man who is older, a man who has wisdom, a man who has life's experience, would be in a position to help his son, particularly since Joseph is right. He's right that Joseph is, Jacob is right. Joseph is the one. He knows the situation with Reuben. You know, that's pretty obvious. Imagine that didn't make him very happy. But he knows that Joseph is the right choice, but it's almost like he trips his own son up from the beginning. I have three questions for you, and you, you know, we don't have time to really delve into it. To me, they're, to me, they're intensely interesting. We could spend time on them, and there might be some profit in more time, but we just don't have it. But... First question, was he, that is Jacob, wise to put him over his older brothers? So he suggests to him again, verse, um, that he go and, and, and watch over his brothers when they have moved to Shechem. So, you know, you, they take the flocks. It's kind of the nature of how you, how you take care of sheep. And I'm, I'm not a, a literal shepherd, I can tell you that. But, you know, you graze out of place, and there's no more grazing there any longer. So, um, you, verse 12 says, his brothers went to pasture, the father's flock in Shechem. So, you move on to where there's greener pastures, so to speak. And Israel said to to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. It already didn't work out real well. So, he sends them again. It's kind of like asking for trouble. Joseph, I I suppose you would hold him up as a banner example of something. I don't know if I want to do this, but he says, here am I. So that's not easy to deal with. Was the coat of many colors not extremely provocative? You couldn't hide that, could you? You really can't hide favoritism. It's there for anybody that's perceptive to see. But when he shows up with this coat of many colors, it's like waving a banner. (laughs) Um, I gave you a verse there, because we do have something in Scripture on this. Uh, I've given you, the ESV is there, but look at how the King James handles it, because it's possible to render it as the ESV does, but it gives a tighter correlation with the other account. If you look at the King James on this, she had, this is is Tamar, Uh, Absalom, the son of David's sister. She had a garment of diverse colors upon her for such, with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled 
Well, the point is, it was, it was royal. It set the person apart. And so that's what's going on here. It, it, the, the brothers don't miss this. They see it right away. And so I, I ask the question, wasn't that extremely provocative? Was that really the greatest move on, on Jacob's part? Thirdly, and, and you know, there's going to be, we could stop and have discussion on this a lot. I understand that. So I, I know I'm not giving you that opportunity. Forgive me. Third one, was it wise to send him again to check on his brothers, knowing of their feelings? We kind of uh, covered that. So you've got him over them in a sense that they don't recognize because to him, to them, he's a helper. But then you have him going to kind of check up on things, and that idea is pretty obvious. So now we're going to dump another one to the two that we already had. We already had the idea of the two ideas, divided loyalty and heady revelation. Here's number three, unsought favor or favoritism. I wish I had more time on this. You can really wax eloquent on this, and someone needs to. But it's just that we don't have the time. But, you know, why do I, why do I bring this up about Jacob? Well, I mean, again, I'm not going to varnish over. I, I don't think I'm better than Jacob, but I will tell you, you would think he would have known better. Since he had already seen the ravages of favoritism in his own life. What had happened that that verse in chapter 25, verse 28, which we're not taking time to turn to, is the fact that you had Jacob and Esau. Which one of those two did Isaac favor? It's not a trick question. Esau. I mean, when you go back and you look at the record, it's easy to understand how Isaac might have gotten sucked into this because even though, spiritually speaking, Esau was not in a right place, he was kind of a man's man. He was a hunter. He was a man of the field. Jacob loved to smell his garments. I don't mean that in a raunchy sense, just like he just, they had the smell of the field. He was a, a man who went out, and, and so he sent him out to get that, venison that he likes, savory meat such as I love, and all of that. But, you know, God had said from the beginning, the older is going to serve the younger. God said that. And so what did that launch off? That launched off with Rachel trying to figure some way to work around her husband, who wasn't at that point totally cooperative, it seemed, with what God had said he was going to do. And so then you get into this scheme, and what happens? They deceive Jacob goes in there and deceives his father, right? You know the story. What's the other verse? Chapter 29, verse 30. Later in life, Jacob gets married. Guess what? He has two wives. He, he didn't quite set out to have two wives. <laughs> That's a different story. But he ended up getting two. And which one of those two did he favor? He had Rachel, uh, Rebecca and, I'm sorry, he had Rachel. He had Rachel and Leah. Which one did he favor? Rachel. She's the one who caught his eye. She's the one he agreed to work for Laban for. It's just on the honeymoon it turned out that Laban had other plans and he ended up with two. But you know all the problems that set off in that home. So you'd think that now you know it's like this is woven through the story, these repeating themes. It's like, please don't miss this, folks. It's like he's saying to you, hey, Tom, when you read this, please don't miss this. Don't do this. This is stupid. And, you know, I, I will tell you, um, 
in our home, we really worked hard on avoiding that kind of thing. I remember the first occasion, you know kids are going to do this, but I remember the first occasion that one of them came in and they tried to, well, your mother told us, well, our mom told us this. And I looked right at that one. I've forgotten who or if it was two of them. And I said, you are not going to divide your mother and me. We stand united. You're not going to have that going on here. That isn't going to work. You've got to avoid this problem, even though sometimes emotionally you may be drawn to one and identify with one more than the other. Right, we're real bad out of time. Uh, the Brother's Malice, that's the last thing, and it's legendary. We don't have time really to talk about it, but look at the list. Look at what they do, and I think you've already seen this in the story. Three times it says they hate him, once it says they envy, they mock him. Behold, this dreamer cometh, this idiot with the dreams. They plot to kill him, they heartlessly ignore him. They put him down in that cistern with no water in it. That was what that was. That's why the Bible tells us when they put him down in it, there was no water. It was a cistern. They put him down in there, and then they sat down right by that and ate. Can you imagine that? That heartless cruelty to do something like that when undoubtedly Jacob or Joseph was down in that thing and crying out to them and, and, and broken over what they had done to him. And then finally, they eventually sell him for 20 shekels. I gave you Leviticus 27.5. It was the going rate for a boy slave. So here's the last four things. We're going to add now frightening jealousy, heartless cruelty, or the last three things, forced bondage. But, and this is important to see. I misread the clock. We're, we're a little better off. That's good. I really don't have a button to reset it. Wish. Anyway, Right down to these touches in the story, you can't miss this because it has a message. It seems like a, an isolated detail that doesn't have any relevance until you go back and look at it in the light of what's going on and what God wants to say. So he goes to Shechem like his father says, and they're gone. It's not like they had cell phones and, and these boys could call home and say, hey, by the way, Dad, we're going from Shechem to Dothan. He didn't know. Joseph gets there. It's like, what do you do? Huh? He gets there. I mean, what would you do? You're not going to set off on some merry goose chase. You'd probably just go back home. But there's a man there. Of all things, of all things that seem so random, it's like Ruth, her hap was to light in the field that belonged to Boaz. It doesn't happen by chance, even though it seems so random. Because God is intent on carrying out this purpose as difficult and hard as it seems. And so he makes it to Dothan where he's really in trouble. And then at the end of the story, how do they deceive their... ...where his father could feel... Clothes weren't there. Skins of goats, hair. See, all of these little touches are given to us so that we don't miss the message. God is in control. 
God could just have easily not had that man there and had Joseph go back home, but it wasn't his plan. And folks, you know, we're all human. Don't we sometimes say this? Oh, God, why did you let me? Why did you let this circumstance occur in my life? God is in control. Couldn't you have spared me this? Certainly. So we must embrace the providences of this gracious God. What does providence mean? Providence means God's forethought and foreknowledge and his planning. It means that God sees everything in advance. He's intimately involved with everything. It means his beneficent and gracious involvement in our lives. And I was thinking about this this morning. I just want you to think about this as we close. How many people in the world today, what do they tell you now? Over, it's over 7 billion, right? And I, when I got ready to pray this morning, I was thinking about this, because I was thinking about this against the backdrop of this lesson. You know, God possesses the ability that if every single person in this world were a believer and were praying right now at the same time, it would be just as if there was only one. He's that great. He could be intimately involved with your life at that moment, reassuring you of his presence and his hearing of your prayers and do that seven billion more times and it wouldn't phase him. That to me is mind-boggling. Last thing is we must also remember how we end is more important than how we begin. Think of two people in the Bible, Solomon and John Mark. Solomon's like a meteor, bright, shining, shooting star. Doesn't end well. That's not good. I'd rather have a shaky start and end well. You? When you think of John Mark, John Mark got off to a shaky start. You know, he goes off on that first missionary journey, takes one look at southern Turkey and says, I'm out of here. I can identify with that. I've been there. But later, he redeemed himself, and Paul found him useful for the ministry. We've got to quit. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of looking into your word. Use something that we've said today that will uh, be helpful. Anything not of God today, let that fall to the ground, blow away as chaff and not even be remembered. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.